welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of September 14th, 2023. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. Jeffco students show gradual improvement in reading and math still below pre-pandemic. By Susie Glassman, special to Colorado Community Media for the Jeffco transcript. Jefferson County focuses on emergency preparedness for older adults by Joe Davis for the Jeffco transcript. Old Town Shindig brings art and fun to Arvada by Lillian Fuglet for the Arvada Press. City Council District 2 election updates. Merle Hendrickson withdraws. Bob Loveridge switches races by Lillian Fuglet for the Arvada Press. Golden celebrates summer's end with rescheduled fireworks show by Corinne Westman for the Golden Transcript. Five candidates running for Golden Mayor in November 7th election by Corinne Westman for the Golden Transcript and following up with various articles. Jeffco students show gradual improvements in reading and math still below pre-pandemic by Susie Glassman, special to Colorado Community Media. Jeffco students are inching closer to pre-pandemic proficiency rates in math and reading, according to the latest results of the Colorado Measures of Academic Success. More students met or exceeded expectations in English, language, arts, and math than in 2022, but scores remained lower than in 2019. Just over half of Jeffco's third through eighth graders who took the test met or exceeded grade-level expectations on the English language arts portion, beating the state average of 43.7%. At 38.7%, math proficiency rates also exceeded the state average of 32.9% and showed a 1.3% improvement over 2022. While the district average hasn't, reached the ELA and math proficiency rates it saw in 2019, there are some bright spots. More Jeffco fifth graders who were in second grade at the height of the learning disruptions are on grade level in reading than four years ago. Also, more third, fourth, and fifth graders met or exceeded math expectations this year than in 2019. Like other areas in Colorado and the U.S., Jeffco students faced learning challenges due to the compounding impacts of the Colorado of the COVID-19 pandemic, said the district in a press release. However, Jeffco students, including specific groups like English language learners and those with individualized education plans, IEPs, are steadily returning to their pre-pandemic achievement levels. The district acknowledged that there's some work to do, that some groups face academic challenges, and that faces some and that some groups face academic challenges. 
While 58% of white students met or exceeded ELA expectations, only 46.4% did so in math. Only 30.3% of black and 29.1% of Hispanic students achieved the same level in English and 13.1% and 17.3% in math, respectively. Among economically disadvantaged students, 25% of those qualify who qualify for free or reduced lunch met or exceeded expectations in English and 14% in math. 90% of students with an IEP, a plan meant to help students with learning challenges achieve at the same academic level of their peers, aren't on grade level for reading, and 91% aren't for math. English language learners struggle the most with only 8.2% meeting or exceeding expectations in English and 3.1% in math. The district said its strategic plan, quote, aims to boost learning for all students, focusing on strengthening reading skills for younger students and math skills for older ones, ensuring all students are prepared for life after graduation. Compared to other metro area districts, a higher percentage of Jeffco students met grade level standards in English than Denver and Cherry Creek school districts and in math than Denver. Jeffco is the second largest school district in the state, serving more than 65,000 students across 140 schools. Jefferson County focuses on emergency preparedness for older adults by Joe Davis. Preparing for an emergency is a bit different for independent older adults. Essential actions in emergency planning like packing an emergency kit and deciding to evacuate or shelter in place comes with special considerations. To help Jefferson County's older residents, The county commissioners have proclaimed September as Emergency Preparedness Month. The theme is, quote, Preparing Older Adults. This year's theme is Preparing for Older Adults, and pre-planning is the best way to improve community resiliency from disaster, the proclamation reads. Jefferson County Public Health is one agency that provides resources, information, and more to help the community prepare this month. At JCPH, a large part of our work is making sure we are preparing our entire community for emergency events, said Anjanette Hawkins, Emergency Preparedness and Response Coordinator at JCPH. Older adults face even greater risk and challenges when it comes to preparing for emergencies. And as pillars of our community, we owe it to them to champion their well-being. One of the sites that Jeffco Public Health recommends is ready.gov. The site is an official website of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. It focuses on emergency preparedness and has a special page for older adults. Quote, as an older adult, you may have specific needs after a disaster. Ready.gov reads, Use the information on this page to assess your needs and take simple, low-cost steps that help you get better prepared. This information urges families to add things to the emergency prep kit that would help an independent older adult after a disaster. This includes copies of medical insurance information, 
extra medical supplies, especially batteries, glasses, oxygen, etc. Hand sanitizer and sanitizing wipes for medical use and a contact list of a medical support services and caregivers, including backup services in case there are issues reaching the home. Another resource, the older adults targeted magazine AARP, offers an Operation Emergency Prepare Guide. It's interactive and allows families and friends of older adults a way to create an emergency preparedness plan. There are worksheets, checklists, and other tools to help capture what an older adult would need after a disaster. There are also actionable steps to help everyone get everyone moving toward implementing and practicing the plan. FEMA and Ready.gov offer a pamphlet called Prepare for Emergencies Now, information for older Americans that's full of tips, ideas, and considerations while creating the emergency plan. They urge older adults to plan by adding a whistle to the emergency preparedness kit that's an extra measure for signaling for help, stockpiling a week of medications and medical supplies, or as many as the pharmacist will allow, keeping tools to create a barrier to the dangerous air if the older adult cannot evacuate. These items include tape, plastic sheets for painting and covering furniture, masks, and more. Securing and or moving items that could move or fall into the walkways. These can impede an emergency evacuation for older adults with disabilities or illnesses that impair mobility. There are many other special considerations that must be made when thinking about securing other older adults in the family and community. As an older adult, you may have specific needs after a disaster, read the Jeffco Public Health announcement on National Emergency Preparedness Month. This is especially true for older adults who live independently, have low income, have disabilities, have chronic health issues, or live in rural areas, end quote. To help families, Jeffco Public Health is hosting an emergency preparedness education and walk-in clinic event from 8 a.m. to noon, September 20th. Check the JCPH website for more information and the location when it's determined. That information will also be included in the Jeffco Transcript newsletter. Sign up is free. Do so today. Old Town Shindig brings art and fun to Arvada by Lillian Fuglet. The sun was shining and Old Town was filled with art for the first Old Town Shindig, an arts and music festival. From September 8th through September 10th, vendors, artists, and musicians took over the streets of Old Town. The festival, organized by the Business Improvement District, featured a wide variety of booths, with many local businesses for shoppers to choose from, as well as food trucks. The Shindig brought a competitive spirit as well, hosting several competitions, the first of which was a mural competition. Over 20 artists were scattered throughout the festival, painting their murals on large pieces of plywood for festival attendees to watch. Murals were judged in two categories, People's Choice and Judge's Choice. The People's Choice winners were Corinne Trujillo in first place, Grow Love in second place, and Rachel Denda in third place. While the Judge's Choice winner was Bobby McGee Lopez, because because he won Judge's Choice, Lopez will soon get the opportunity to create a mural in Old Town.
The festival also featured several other competitions, including a pie-eating contest sponsored by Rhinelander Bakery and a Bloody Mary competition. Quote, Really, our goal was to have so many awesome things going on that there's no way that every single person could do every everything that it weakened, said Joe Hinksler, director of the Business Improvement District. For even more festivities, the Shindig partnered with the Rocky Mountain Archtop Guitar Festival, a festival celebrating the unique guitars with workshops, clinics, and musical performances. Several performances were put on in Old Town, with other shows sprinkled throughout Arvada. Peter Hendrickson, who organized the Archtop Festival, said that the partnering with the Shindig made it a much larger, more inclusive, and more immersive event. City Council District 2 election update. Merle Hendrickson withdraws. Bob Loveridge switches races. By Lillian Fuglet. The race for Arvada's District 2 City Council seat has thinned after two candidates, Merle Hendrickson and Bob Loveridge, have withdrawn. Neither candidate is the first to withdraw from the District 2 race. Current District 2 Council member Lawrence Simpson had initially filed to run against, again for her seat, but withdrew to shift her focus to running for mayor. This leaves two candidates in the race, Michael Griffith and Shauna Ambrose. After withdrawing from the District 2 race, Loveridge filed to run for the at-large seat instead. He is now running against Kathleen Kennedy and Sharon Davis. Loveridge noted that he believed his chances of winning were higher in the at-large race than they had been in District 2. I really wanted to go the simple route, Loveridge said. District 2 just got so crowded. He added that the seat doesn't matter, as he knows this issue citywide. Hendrickson opted to withdraw from the election entirely, citing concerns regarding the possibility of Ambrose winning, should there be too many candidates in District 2. This was concerning to me, given Shauna's far-left political views, Hendrickson said. They are not in line with those of the average Arvadan. Hendrickson said that he saw Loveridge drop out of the race. He decided to do the same, expressing that he now supported Griffith in the District 2 race. The majority of progressive council members like Shauna and Lauren Simpson would take Arvada down a path towards becoming indistinguishable from Denver or Aurora, Hendrickson added. That would not be a good thing for our city, end quote. Golden celebrates summer's end with rescheduled fireworks show by Corinne Westman. This year, Labor Day weekend looked a little more like the 4th of July. After poor weather postponed Golden's annual Independence Day fireworks show, city officials rescheduled it for September 1st to coincide with the summer's final movies and music in the park night. Around 7 p.m., the band Ghost Town Drifters played to a growing crowd at Lions Park as the sunlight slowly faded from the sky. Then, around 8.30... The fireworks show kicked off, dazzling Goldenites and visitors all over the city. Considering Taste of Colorado's Denver's biggest Labor Day weekend event was canceled this year, 
Locals shared online how the rescheduled fireworks show felt like a fun way to celebrate summer's end. Afterward, folks stuck around Lions Park to watch Ghostbusters Afterlife. As Golden leaves summer behind and starts preparing for the spooky season. Five candidates running for Golden Mayor in November 7th election by Corinne Westman. From the mayor to the fire department, the future of Golden is in voters' hands this November. Three city council positions, including the mayor, are up for election November 7th, and the city will have two tax-related questions on the ballot. One asks for a $6 million property tax increase to help fund the Golden Fire Department. The other asks for voters' permission to use a $600,000 lodging tax surplus. The city will have a third question to update general charter language to become more gender neutral, such as counselor instead of councilman. In Golden's mayoral race, current Mayor Laura Weinberg is running for re-election, and four are running in opposition. They are Country Joe McDonald, Heather Schneider, Charles Sturdivant, and Joaquim Vilsame. Additionally, four are in the running for J.J. Trout's District 1 councillor seats, which represents the southern half of Golden. Trout is not term-limited, but isn't seeking re-election this November. The four candidates for District 1 councillor are Matt Duncan, Jacob Luria, Lisa Vitry, and Mary Weaver. Meanwhile, Patty Evans and Benjamin Moline are running for Casey Brown's District 2 councillor seat, which represents the northern half of Golden. Brown is term-limited. Those elected to city council will be sworn in January 9th, according to City Clerk Monica Mendoza. Property tax ballot question. Golden's property tax question will ask voters to approve a 6 mil increase, which would generate about $4.7 million for the Golden Fire Department in its first year. City Manager Scott Vargo said that for residential property owners, the increase would equal roughly $35 per year per $100,000 of a property's assessed value. So, for a home, a $500,000 residence, the homeowner would pay an additional $175 in property taxes if the measure passed. The formula would be different for non-residential properties, he clarified. If passed, Vargo explained these funds would help the Golden Fire recruit, train, and retain personnel, improve response times by staffing two stations 24-7, and purchase necessary equipment. Golden is a combination department of both paid and volunteer firefighters, although Vargo said it's becoming harder to recruit and retain volunteers. Additionally, the department's seen, quote, increased demand and community expectation around the services, it provides, Vargo continued. Specifically, if the measure passes, it would help fund 14 positions, including firefighters and battalion chiefs. Nine of these positions have been grant-funded, although funding for two of them have expired, and funding for the other seven will expire in the next two years, Vargo said, adding that the city can't reapply for those grants. So, to preserve these positions, the city must generate its own funding if, quote, we want to maintain the momentum we've got. 
Currently, GFD receives general fund dollars, but doesn't have any dedicated or earmarked tax revenues, Vargo said. Instead of a property tax increase, the city council considered a 0.45% sales tax option, but decided property tax revenues would be more stable year-to-year than sales tax revenues. Plus, other local departments are mostly funded by property taxes rather than sales taxes, Vargo added. The city's voter survey earlier this year show respondents generally supported either a sales tax or a property tax increase to help fund GFD. Lodging tax surplus. In November 2021, Golden Voters passed a 6% lodging tax to help address visitor impacts on the city and fund capital improvement projects. The ballot language said the tax would generate $2 million in its first year based on city officials' estimates from 2020 and early 2021 data. However, the tax officially generated $2.6 million in its first year, creating a surplus the city now needs voters' approval to use because of the Colorado Taxpayers' Bill of Rights. Bargo said the city theoretically could issue a refund, but because visitors, not residents, paid the tax, it'd be complicated in terms of practicality and equity. If this surplus use is approved, Varco explained the city will use the extra $589,000 for the same purposes as the other $2 million in revenues. This includes managing the Clear Creek Corridor with trail improvements, code enforcement, and more. Providing community grants for 20 local nonprofits and helping establish the Orcart shuttle system with Colorado School of Mines. Follow the Golden Transcript in print, online, and on social media for more in-depth candidate and ballot question coverage ahead of the November 7th election. Horse Herd Roundup Begins Federal Roundup seeks to remove entire wild horse herd in western Colorado by Jennifer Brown, the Colorado Sun. Colorado's first scheduled wild horse roundup this year is set to begin this month, when federal land managers plan to start removing the entire West Douglas herd in Rio Blanco County along the Utah border. Starting in September, a low-flying helicopter will try to push all 122 horses, which are on public and private land, into temporary corrals before hauling them to the U.S. Bureau of Land Management's holding pens in Canyon City. The last roundup of West Douglas horses in 2021 resulted in the removal of nearly 450 animals from rugged land the BLM has deemed unsuitable for Mustangs. About one-third of those horses, 145 of them, died in Canyon City seven months later in an equine flu outbreak. Investigators determined that many of those horses, whose lungs were likely damaged by a wildfire when they were living on the rangeland, were not vaccinated against the flu after they were captured in violation of federal policy. Mustang advocates in Colorado and nationally are protesting the latest roundup. Quote, The Bureau of Land Management appears to have learned nothing from last year's horrific disease outbreak at the Canyon City Holding Facility. Joanna Grossman, equine program director for the Animal Welfare Institute, said in an emailed statement. 
She called the federal plan, quote, especially troubling since Governor Jared Polis signed a law this year that attempts to give the state greater authority over wild horse management, including by supporting fertility control programs and possibly a wild horse sanctuary. The governor, who tried but failed to stop a federal roundup in the Sandwash Basin in 2021, has said he wants more humane operations than helicopter roundups. Federal land managers plan to remove 20 horses from the Sandwash Basin in northwestern Colorado along the Wyoming border at the end of September. Across the highway from West Douglas in what's called the Pisciance East Douglas Herd Management Area, the federal government has enlisted volunteers to shoot birth-controlled darts into wild mares. The BLM this month announced it was awarding the volunteer group running the birth control program, the Pisciance Mustangs in Meeker, a $120,620 grant to keep darting horses and to buy water tanks to keep horses alive when creeks in the basin are dry. Last summer, the federal agency used a helicopter to remove 761 horses from the Pisciance, which is dotted with sagebrush and oil pumps and has cliffs and canyons where vehicles cannot go. The rangeland still has about 750 horses, and it's likely to see another roundup in the near future because federal land managers say the appropriate number for the 200,000 acres is 235 horses, wild horses. The appropriate number for West Douglas, the BLM says, is zero. Quote, the West Douglas herd area is not managed for wild horses due to limited food and water, which causes the horses to stray into private lands. The agency's Wild River Field Office Manager Bill Mills said in announcing the roundup. The West Douglas rangeland is not one of Colorado's four official herd management areas and was deemed inappropriate as a Mustang habitat in 1975. The area has limited water and grasses, and the removal of the Mustangs will restore, quote, a thriving natural ecological balance, the agency said. Mustangs in the area are impacting the habitats of other animals and have spread onto private property, Mills said. The public lands where wild horses graze in Colorado are shared not only by deer, elk, and other natural habitat, but cattle and sheep whose owner leases whose owners lease the land from the federal government. After arriving in Canyon City, the horses will receive vaccinations and other veterinary care, and after a few months, will be available for adoption. Those not adopted will go to the BLM's long-term pastures, which the agency leases from ranchers and other landowners in various parts of the country. The BLM removed more than 30,000 horses in 2021 and 2022 from rangeland across the West, including about 1,500 in Colorado. This year, the agency plans to remove about 6,000 horses nationwide. The story is from the Colorado Sun and journalist-owned news outlet based in Denver and covering the state. For more and to support the Colorado Sun, visit coloradosun.com. The Colorado Sun is a partner in the Colorado News Conservancy, owner of Colorado Community Media. Local Voices. Pirates make annual landing at North Glen. 
Coming Attractions by Clark Reader. When you live in a landlocked state like Colorado, it's probably a safe bet that you don't really think of pirates all that often. I mean, why would you? They live on those big bodies of water that are hundreds of miles away from us. And yet, Pirate Fest has become one of North Glen's biggest events of the year and is back bigger than ever on Friday, September 15th and Saturday, September 16th at E.B. Rains Jr. Memorial Park, 11701 Community Center Drive in North Glen. The free event has been split into two portions, Pirate Nights on Friday and Pirate Fest on Saturday. Pirate Nights, 5 to 10 p.m. September 15th. This component is geared toward those 18 years old and older and will include live music, a mermaid encounter, dinner, the crowning of the Pirate King, and plenty of adult beverages. The live music schedule for the evening is 5 to 6 p.m. Big Patty, 6.30 to 7.45, Chancers Hooley, 8.15 to 10 p.m., The McDeviants. According to provided information, costumes will be encouraged and the best dressed will be invited to participate in a costume contest for prizes. Pirate Fest, 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. September 16th. This family-friendly portion is the main event and features all kinds of fun ways to spend the day. For the children, there will be bounce houses, arts and crafts contests, treasure hunts, and maybe even a mermaid or two. For the adults, attendees can participate in shanty singing, cardboard boat watching or racing, beverages and food, and much more. The cardboard regatta portion of the festivities begin at 2 p.m., followed by awards when the races are complete. The live music schedule for the day is 11 a.m. to noon, Nera Fiddler Duo, 1230 to 2 p.m., The Commoners, 2.30 to 4 p.m., Celtic Chaos, 4.30 to 6 p.m., Angus Moore. All the details, including parking and FAQs, can be found at thepiratefest.com. Rendezvous at the Forts with Tesoro Cultural Center. For the 21st year, the Tesoro Cultural Center is hosting the Rendezvous at the Fort. 19192 Highway 8 in Morrison on Saturday and Sunday, September 16th and 17th. According to provided information, the annual event allows Tesoro the opportunity to host award-winning artists, professional historical interpreters, and musicians in an effort to recognize the far western mountaineers and American Indians of the fur trade from the Bent's Old Fort era. The weekend will feature a range of activities, including ceremonial song and dance demonstrations, historical storytelling, scavenger hunts, animal education, and much more. For all the necessary information, visit tesoroculturalcenter.org. That's T-E-S-O-R-O, culturalcenter.org. Chicken Dance, your way over to Colfax Chicken Fest. West Colfax is well known for its unique events, and that streak continues with the Colfax Chicken Fest. The free, family-friendly party is from noon to 4 p.m. on Saturday, September 16th at 40 West Arts, 1560 Teller Street in Lakewood. The event honors the HUB building, the hub building, which was once a Denver drumstick restaurant, where diners could chow down on boxcar chicken dinners. 
Now the hub will host everything from live music to chicken-inspired contests and art activities to drumstick 40 West Gallery exhibitions and chicken food trucks. All the info you need on this delightful event can be found at 40westarts.org. And Clark's Concert of the Week, Arctic Monkeys at Red Rocks. Back in 2013, England's Arctic Monkeys looked like they were the last proper rock band around, thanks to the smashing success of AM. An album that did all the things a stadium rock record should and did them beautifully. And the two ensuing albums, including last year's beautiful The Car, the group has jettisoned the whole stadium star thing in favor of searching sci-fi and moody orchestra epics. Doesn't get more rock star than that. In support of The Car, Arctic Monkeys are playing Red Rocks 18300 West Alameda Parkway in Morrison at 7.30 p.m. on Monday, September 18th with Fontaine's D.C., that was an amazing sentence to write, and I hope you take it seriously and get tickets at Ticketmaster.com. Clark Reader's column on culture appears on a weekly basis. He can be reached at Clark with an E dot reader at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denver Right, and Westward. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading, What Could Social Housing Look Like in Denver? by Robert Davis. From Denver Right, I'll be reading, $6.4 million contract to fund encampment outreach passes City Council Committee, but not without concerns, by Desiree Matherin. And local nonprofits offer scholarships for post-secondary education in honor of Ma Kang, also by Desiree Matherin. From Westward, I'll be reading, Fire at Capitol Hill Apartments leaves residents who unionized last fall in limbo, by Katie Cheshire. And... Colorado Polling Institute's second poll looks at Denver School Board election by Benjamin Neufeld. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice. What could social housing look like in Denver? By Robert Davis. Denver's lack of affordable housing has inspired creative solutions from safe outdoor spaces for the unhoused to co-housing for renters. Now, some local leaders are floating the idea of creating a social housing program in Denver to, as they say, provide some permanent relief from rising housing costs. District 8 Council Member Chantel Lewis introduced the idea during a Budget and Policy Committee meeting on August 7th when she proposed funding a study about creating a social housing program in Denver's 2024 budget. She said the idea was one she heard consistently while on the campaign trail. What I'm trying to get to is that we are taking a more comprehensive approach to how we are addressing the issues of housing and homelessness at the same time, Lewis said during the meeting. The term social housing can meet, refer to many things, but New York University's Center on International Cooperation defines it as a model that prioritizes the social value of housing for communities 
over its ability to generate profits for a select few. These models can be subsidized by the government or run by not-for-profit entities. Social housing and public housing are often talked about synonymously, but they serve different purposes. Social housing differs from public housing in that it can serve both middle and low income households, whereas public housing is reserved for people earning the lowest incomes. Social housing units can be offered on the free market and frequently cap rents for tenants at 30% to 35% of their income. The economic blend of tenants and social housing development also allows for higher income tenants to effectively subsidize rents for lower income tenants. On the other hand, public housing operators often require vouchers to access and rely on government reimbursements to manage their cash flow. Social housing is common in European countries like the Netherlands, where social housing units make up 29% of the overall housing stock, according to data from Harvard's Joint Center for Housing Studies. Austria, Denmark, and England also have robust social housing programs. Stateside, the idea is still relatively new. Seattle was one of the first U.S. cities to experiment with social housing when voters passed Initiative 135 in February. The initiative created a new development authority called the Seattle Social Housing Developer that is tasked with expanding the local public housing stock, but the entity's work has yet to begin. California legislators are also toying with the idea of creating a statewide social housing development authority. For example, Assembly Bill 309 would require the new development authority to build up to three social housing projects on excess state-owned land. Similarly, Senate Bill 555 and Senate Bill 584 would establish social housing development goals and levy additional fees and taxes against short-term rental properties to support social housing developments. Lewis told Denver Voice in an interview that she has pitched the idea of creating a social housing program to some city councilors as well as constituents who call her office to talk about housing issues. She added the response has been mixed, with some expressing reservations about the legality of Denver owning and operating real estate and the practical aspects of the program itself. The reality is that this type of housing impacts a lot more people than we are currently talking about, Lewis said. Councilwoman Sarah Parati, one of Denver's at-large representatives, told Denver Voice in an interview that she supports the idea of creating a social housing model in the city. Outside of capping rents, Parati said social housing could also provide renters with more legal protections against eviction because renters who live in municipally run social housing units would be able to assert their constitutional rights during a dispute. However, there is an open question regarding whether Denver can own and operate real estate at all. Both Lewis and Parati said that they believe Denver's ordinances allow the city to own and operate its own housing developments. Parati also said the city attorney's office disagrees with their perspective. I think the big question is whether we can convince people that social housing is worth the lift of cutting through all the complexity to make it happen, Parati told Denver Voice. We have such a large affordable housing shortage and that has become so urgent that solving the problem is viewed as an uphill climb by a lot of people. While discussions about social housing in Denver are preliminary, there seems to be some disagreement about how a social housing model would work in Denver. 
One key component of this model is what's known as democratic resident control, which essentially means that social housing tenants would form an association similar to a homeowners association. Shannon Hoffman, who advocated for social housing during her campaign for the District 10 seat on Denver City Council, said she would like social housing tenants to be required to serve on their tenants association as a way to promote a community dynamic within a building. She added that this idea is where her thinking diverges from other people she's talked to about social housing. We need an innovative and creative solution to our housing crisis, and we need affordable rents, Hoffman told Denver Voice in an interview. There's also the practical problem of creating a new social housing development entity outside of Denver Housing Authority and finding land to accommodate social housing developments. Hoffman said there has been talk about introducing a ballot initiative to create such an entity, but those discussions are preliminary as well. Land issues surrounding social housing may prove to be easier to navigate given Denver Mayor Mike Johnston's willingness to try innovative housing programs. For example, Johnston is working to fulfill his campaign promise to create micro-communities of tiny homes and shelters to help people escape homelessness. However, Land the city identified that could support such sites is primarily concentrated in historically underserved communities, Axios Denver reported. Lewis added that she's concerned about further concentrating poverty in places in Denver that have a lot of affordable housing already. Despite the disagreements, social housing supporters say the idea could help alleviate some of the pains caused by Denver's unaffordable housing market. As of July 2023, there were just 563 homes for sale in Denver, a decline of 39% since July of 2020, according to the Colorado Association of Realtors. Meanwhile, Denver's median home price in Denver County was $696,500, which represents an increase of nearly 30% over the last three years. Similarly, the Metro Denver Apartment Association measured the city's average rent at $1,870 in July, an increase of about 11% over three years. The average weekly wage in Denver, on the other hand, has only increased by 7.4% over the same time period, data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics shows. Hoffman said that the city's affordable housing challenges are also straining the local community, Teachers, firefighters, and service industry workers all struggle to afford housing in Denver, and the city wouldn't function well without them. To that end, a social housing program in Denver could provide a safety net for workers who can't afford the cost of living, she said. We're getting to the point where we don't have much time left to sit back and think about this problem, Hoffman said. What we've been doing hasn't worked, and we need to find new solutions. These next two articles are from Denverite. $6.4 million contract to fund encampment outreach passes City Council Committee, but not without concerns, by Desiree Matherin. A plan to provide funding for outreach to Denver residents living in encampments and help them move into non-congregate shelters, bridge housing, or supporting housing cleared its first hurdle in City Council on Wednesday. The six $6.4 million proposed contract would go toward starting one leg of the city's encampment response, dubbed Encampment Resolution Outreach. 
It's part of Mayor Mike Johnston's goal of housing at least 1,000 people by the end of the year. The proposed funding agreement is between the Department of Housing Stability and the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless, but the funding itself would be given to the Coalition to the home, for the Homeless, which will perform the outreach. The St. Francis Center and Urban Peak will be subcontractors. The Coalition will hire 21 additional staff, including a nurse, outreach workers, behavioral health navigators, case managers, and housing navigators. While the agreement was accepted by some members of the Safety, Housing, Education, and Homelessness Committee as an important step forward, other members were left with questions and feelings of unease. Through the agreement, the outreach team will be responsible for providing supportive services to those living in encampments. Those services include move-in assistance, making sure clients have all the necessary paperwork and documentation, landlord recruitment, connecting clients with behavioral and physical health services, enrolling clients into different programs such as subsidized housing or rent assistance. The purpose of the wide range of services is to make transitioning into housing as simple as possible. The coalition's target, in collaboration with the city, will be to ultimately move 1,080 people from encampments into housing, with a minimum goal of 90 people per quarter. Some council members are concerned about duplicative services. Councilwoman Amanda Sawyer pointed out that the services being proposed through this agreement are already provided by several organizations throughout the city, such as the Early Intervention Team and the Denver Street Outreach Collaborative and Strategic Outreach to Large Encampments programs, both of which are partially run by the Coalition for the Homeless. We have already dumped significant amounts of money into this exact same thing, Sawyer said. Why are we not utilizing the resources we already have and the structures we already have in place instead of adding new money to a new contract to do this? Why are we continuing to have this fragmented silo system where we have multiple agencies and multiple teams doing multiple things for the same purpose? She noted that the contract may be the right way to go about addressing encampments, but having the other programs along with this proposed contract doesn't make financial sense. Cole Chandler, Mayor Mike Johnston's senior advisor for homelessness resolution, slightly agreed with Sawyer. He said that homelessness resolution team is looking into the various programs that address outreach and assistance measures, but he noted that this specific program is different from the others. The reality of this particular contract is that it's focused on encampment resolution and leveraging available resources around an encampment to surround the folks there and help them move into housing, Chandler said. That is not a way that we've approached encampments in the past. Using this approach brings a heightened focus to closing the encampments and allows the team to determine whether the other programs have been effective and efficient, he added. This could become the central piece in the way we engage encampments moving forward into the long term, and then there's a chance to reorient around that, Chandler said. This approach of going encampment by encampment and being able to surround those encampments and ultimately resolve them is something that we need to bring forward at this time. Other council members raised concerns about staff hiring and effects on businesses. Council member Chantel Lewis questioned the coalition's current workload, and council member Sarah Parati questioned how much of the proposed funding would go toward staff salaries. 
There were several other concerns that didn't necessarily pertain to the proposed contract. Sawyer and Council Member Darrell Watson noted that many local businesses in their districts have said they're suffering financially because of encampments. Both mentioned the urgency expressed by business owners in having the encampments removed quickly so customers feel safer and have easy access to their establishments. Sawyer wondered if funding could be diverted to business owners experiencing hardships because of the encampments in the same way the city provides financial assistance to businesses during periods of construction. Chandler said that funding is something the task force would look into. At the end, the proposal passed through the committee with Sawyer and Watson voting no. The proposal will make its way to full council in the upcoming weeks. Meanwhile, with a unanimous yes vote, the committee also passed a grant agreement between Host and the Denver Housing Authority. The grant for $15,700,000 would go toward repaying a bridge loan DHA received to purchase the best western Central Park at 4595 Quebec Street. The funding will come from, from the American Rescue Plan Act. The hotel will eventually be converted into permanent supportive housing, but for the next three years, it'll act as a non-congregate shelter run by the Salvation Army. When the building is converted into permanent supportive housing, at least 40% of the units will be dedicated to tenants who make 30% of the area median income, or less than $24,650 for an individual and $35,150 for a family of four. This proposal will also head to full council in the upcoming weeks. Local nonprofits offer scholarships for post-secondary education in honor of Ma Kang by Desiree Matherin. It's been over a year since community leader Ma Kang died. In July of 2022, Kang was killed outside her home in East Colfax by stray bullets shot from nearby New Freedom Park. She was the owner of a Burmese restaurant known in the community for her work giving back. Since Kang was killed, four men were arrested and charged in her death. Denver police installed more lights and surveillance cameras in the neighborhood, and Verizon said they would update their 911 call routing system so no one will have to struggle to get in touch with the right police department again. Also since Kang's passing, a coalition of nonprofits started a scholarship fund to assist first and second generation immigrants with paying for higher education or trade skills. The Ma Kang Scholarship Fund was established by the Refugee Action Coalition of Colorado, which includes the International Rescue Committee in Denver, Lutheran Family Services Rocky Mountains, and the Spring Institute for Intercultural Learning. The coalition has traditionally assisted the refugee and immigrant community with a range of advocacy work and services that include adult education classes. Those classes also include high school equivalency preparation and career coaching, said Paula Schreifer, Spring Institute's president and CEO. But the coalition wanted to expand their offerings. So they applied for a grant to help people in the community who want to extend their educations. I think it was only $4,000 to provide little scholarships for refugees and immigrants who are interested in getting a post-secondary education, Schreifer said. They're not huge pots of money, but they're things that can definitely help individuals who otherwise would just be taking that on as debt. It can help for pay for rent. It can help pay for books. It can help pay for tuition. 
Schreifer said while the coalition was working on the mini-scholarship, Kang's death highlighted the numerous issues plaguing East Colfax. It also brought to life who Kang was, a community leader and immigrant who shared her wealth with others. Schreifer said the coalition wanted to name the scholarship after Kang and reached out to her family for their permission. Once the scholarship was announced, Schreifer said an email blast was sent out to a bunch of nonprofit organizations and it reached the inbox of Kyle Clark, 9 News. Clark hosts a Word of Thanks segment, which is all about micro-giving to nonprofits. Clark mentioned the scholarship on the show, and Schreifer said that that initial $4,000 grew into almost $30,000. Last year, 22 people received a scholarship and pursued a slew of career opportunities. One person went to a technical school to get a certificate as a mechanic. Another is pursuing an advanced degree to become a neurosurgeon. The goal of the scholarship wasn't to limit where recipients can go to school or what they can major in because everyone's trajectory is different, Schreifer said. I think things have really shifted in the U.S. as colleges and universities have become so expensive, and I think people have recognized that that closes itself off as an opportunity for so many people, Schreifer said. We don't want to make those choices for people. As long as somebody's going into something that's meaningful to them, that's going to allow them to live a full, successful life, support themselves, support their families. We want to encourage that. This will be the second year the coalition is offering the scholarship. This is also the second year they've partnered with Clark. They've raised over $11,000 as of September 8th and are still accepting donations, which can be done through the Spring Institute's website. Schreifer said so far they've received about 33 applications, The deadline is September 22nd. To qualify, applicants must be at least 17 years old and either enrolled in or accepted into a post-secondary educational or training program. Applicants must be members of the immigrant and refugee community, either first or second generation. They must live in Colorado and intend to go to school in Colorado. And lastly, the recipients must commit to staying in touch with the organizations to provide occasional updates. Schreifer said anyone who needs assistance can reach out to the Spring Institute. The coalition's goal is about support, just like Kang supported her community. For the foreseeable future, we'll keep it going and we'll keep it focused on these scholarships for post-secondary education, Schreifer said, citing the growing expense of higher education and how inaccessible that it is to many immigrants and refugees. We know that any post-secondary education is really critical for people to do well economically in today's economy, so we really want to encourage choice, she said. The following articles are from Westward. Fire at Capitol Hill Apartments leaves residents who unionized last fall in limbo, by Katie Cheshire. A fire at the Capitol Hill Apartments earlier this month forced all of its residents out, with no timeline for when the Section 8 building at 701 East 14th Avenue might be cleared for reentry, leaving many people without belongings or any sense of help from property management. We were told to get what you need for the next couple of days, said tenant Scott Blevins, who has lived at the building for nearly eight years. A lot of people are beating themselves up about not grabbing more at this point. I haven't been directly contacted by management, he tells Westward, 
They did leave a note on my door at the hotel, but some people are already talking that they've applied for housing and that they're moving, and then some people said that they're staying, and I don't know what to believe. The blaze tore through the complex on the afternoon of September 7th, with residents having to move quickly. I woke up, and I barely got dressed and grabbed my phone, and I opened the door, and it was full of smoke, Blevins recalls. I know it happened, but it still doesn't seem 100% real. After, Den- after the Denver Fire Department extinguished the blaze, tenants were allowed in to grab a few things, but most didn't expect it would be this long until they were able to return. Blevins says he didn't consider the changing weather and didn't even grab a jacket for chilly fall mornings. According to Blevins, Avail Property Management has not been responsive when asked about a timeline for moving back in or about the possibility of stopping by to pick up a few more items. This follows the pattern he's experienced in his time living at the Capitol Hill Apartments, he says. The entire property includes nine buildings, but the one at 701 East 14th unionized last November to try to hold Avail accountable for a range of issues, including a lack of security and failure to communicate with residents about maintenance issues. The Capitol Hill Apartments Tenants Association became the first Denver chapter of Denver Aurora Tenants United, which advocates for housing dignity across the metro area. At first, we had a lady that was really working with us, Blevins says, of Avail's response to the community unionizing. However, that person no longer works there, and Blevins claims the same old issues have persisted, despite marginal improvement. There's still a communication problem, but it's better than it was, he says. We continue to have problems with people getting in the building that shouldn't have been. There were cameras torn down, and I feel that should have been replaced very quickly that weren't. In the original letter the union sent to management last fall, it identified problems with the building's electrical circuit, including an unlocked switch box that allowed access to anyone and lacked security. It has always been a problem, Blevins says. We have neighbors that we have to go run and flip the breaker for every day because it just pops and then they have no power in their unit. The electrical system caused the fire, according to the Denver Fire Department report on the incident, which Westward obtained through a Colorado Open Records Act request. Upon investigation, it was determined that there was an electrical panel in the first floor hallway that was short-circuiting and sending sparks to the surrounding area, the report says. Smoke conditions worsened and further investigation revealed a fire burning inside of the electrical panel and behind the wall adjacent to the panel. The official cause of the fire was confirmed as a malfunction of the electrical panel equipment. After being evacuated, residents headed to the American Red Cross, which has helped them find places to stay at hotels. Blevins says the Red Cross has been helpful and communicative in a way that building management hasn't. Communication among residents had been made harder by the fact that they aren't all in the same hotel, or even in the same city. Blevins is at a hotel in Centennial. Others were sent to Lakewood. Several were sent to Thornton. Being scattered across the metro area has been difficult for many, as their lives were centered around the Cap Hill area. Blevins, for example, has had to find a way to get downtown in order to see his doctor and replace certain medications he left behind in a hurry after the blaze. While the community is strong, it's been tricky to coordinate who has what information and to support each other. 
Personally, my closest friends are not at the hotel I'm at, and that's been a little hard, Blevins says. My go-to people are on the other side of town. Avail is part of a national company known as PK Management outside of Colorado. Christopher Baca, Senior Director of Community Development for PK Management, says the company sends its condolences to the displaced residents.